The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. My name is Luis Acevedo. I'm the pastor of the ministry in Spanish here in Stoneo Bible Church. And as always, it is a privilege, uh, is my privilege to be here and especially sharing the sermon this morning. Uh, for the last four Sundays, we have dedicated ourselves to carefully studying one of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to one of his most beloved collaborators in ministry. Today, I have been entrusted with the fifth message of our series of the book of First of Timothy. The scripture on which we will concentrate the morning, this morning has a somewhat different tone in comparison with the verses that uh, we have been presented already at the beginning of this letter. To understand what I'm saying this, let's look to the teaching tone used by Paul in the first 11 verses we have discussed so far. First, the apostle, Paul, warns Timothy, who is the pastor of the church in Ephesus, about the false teachers that were emerging, not from the outside of the church, but from the inside of the church. Second, Paul's instruct Timothy to exhort to the church to avoid the teaching of strange doctrines, to avoid the teaching of myth and crazy genealogies, and call Timothy to no longer waste time in useless discussions that won't bring any benefits to the propagation of the gospel. So Paul urged the church to stay focused on the message of the gospel. And for the apostle, the message of the gospel was so central and so critical that he spanned the next six verses from verse 12 to verse 17, presenting and describing the gospel. But not only by giving us a definition of the gospel, but also by presenting the gospel in the form of what we call a testimony. And here's why I said that Paul is presenting a somewhat different tone compared with what we already seen so far in the first part of the chapter one. The testimony the author of Timothy is talking about is not an alien account related to another person. He's not talking here about the Apostle Peter's testimony or John's Apostle testimony or the testimony of any of other of the apostles or disciples. He's talking about his own testimony, about his own experience. In fact, all the commentaries and the articles that I use or I consulted during my study for this sermon agree on calling this piece of scripture Paul's testimony. The words we are about to read in these verses are a declaration of number one, who Paul was in the past. I mean, his life before his encounter with Christ. Number two, who Paul is now in the present, 
when he's writing. After that transforming encounter with the Lord. And number three, the differences between both Pauls. I have no doubt, church, that during this sermon this morning, you will feel the need to also look at your past. And look to who you were before you encounter Jesus. And look to who you are now that you have embraced the truth of the gospel. For sure, your life is not the same. For sure, you can show evidence of the transformation you experience now that Jesus is your Savior and your Lord. In fact, this transformation provokes in us something that we call gratitude. This transformation provokes in us a sincere desire to honor God with our lives and to surrender ourselves in worship to Him. Praise the Lord. So I invite you to open your Bibles with me and read the verses in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning knowing that in all things we depend only on you. My desire this morning is not to impress anyone with my words. Because actually these are not my words. My real desire this morning is that I can be effective in speaking your word and that your word becomes alive and effective in the life of those who are listening to it. I ask that you can, that I can articulate my word with my words the truth, the truth of your word. If there's any limitations, and I have some with my words, I pray that in a miracle way, every single person in this place can fully understand my words and receive them. Bring clarity to our minds to receive what you have specifically revealed for us in this letter to Timothy. Lead us, guide us in your truth. May the truth of your word transform us. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said, Amen. Since the beginning of this year, 2023, our church has been involved in an intentional discipleship called Inhabit. Inhabit is an opportunity to share life together here at Stono Bible as brothers and sisters within the local church while we intentionally grow as disciples of Christ. The section we have studied this last week actually the same section that we discussed today here in this place uh, is called, How Can I Make Disciples? Talks about the different ways we obviously 
make disciples. And one of the ways mentioned by the author is that we can make disciples by telling others about our story of redemption. As the author called it, our story of grace. Whether you are new in the faith uh, and with your walk with Jesus, or a believer for many years, one of the most effective tools we have to make disciples is telling others who we were before Christ and who we are now after Christ has found us. And this is, in fact, what we, we will look at this passage this morning. So let's start with verse 12. It says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Notice here that Paul begins by thank you, Jesus. Number one, for having given him the strength. And number two, for having put him at his service after having judged him faithful. Let's go and unpack this a little bit. First, what if... What, what's Paul specifically referring to when he says, giving me strength? When we read the book of Acts and the letters that Paul has written to the churches, we will observe all the sufferings Paul experienced for the sake of the gospel. He has endured all the sufferings since his conversion. However, he does not have any desire to look back or go back to his former life. Why not? Well, because Paul has experienced the strength of the Lord in his life. He knows that the strength that he has received, even in the most difficult times, not comes from him, is coming from the Lord. In his letter to Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, 12 and 13 says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And I can do all things through him who strengthened me. That's a very difficult word for me. The apostle has received a divine strength that has led him to act in accordance with God's will. In verse 12, Paul also says that the Lord has judged him faithful. Question, was Paul faithful when God shows him? The answer is absolutely not. This transaction that has been produced in the life of Paul of being made faithful is called justification. Through Jesus' faithfulness, now Paul who has, I don't you know, through Jesus' faithfulness, now Paul, who was an unfaithful dude, is now judged faithful. Not by Paul's own effort or merit, but by the work of Christ. So even though Paul was not faithful, the Lord judged him as faithful. The last verse of Last of verse 12, Paul has received that strength and has been judged faithful since Jesus himself recruited him for his service. 
Now, Paul has been transformed and is living faithfully for Christ. In chapter uh, 2, verse 3 and 4 of 2nd of Timothy, he exhorted his friend in ministry the following. He said, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlists him. On the Spanish translation that I like more, <laughs> says, in order to please the one who recruited him as a soldier. Now you agree with me, right? <laughs> Paul says, since I am unfaithful, but made faithful by the Lord, I have totally surrendered to Christ. My loyalty now is with my Lord. So in order to summarize verse 12, Paul renders loyalty to his Lord and thank him for having provided his salvation despite having been unfaithful. Christ, brothers and sisters, has been always faithful. Through Jesus Christ, God gives strength to Paul. Through Jesus Christ, God will justify Paul. Through Jesus Christ, God used him as an instrument for his glory. Isn't that what happened to all of us? That even though we were unfaithful, God has been faithful. Yes, in Romans 5, verse 8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In addition to giving us the strength to have faith and being justified, we have been made faithful even though we were not. And he also has elevated us to a position where we are now, like Paul, instruments for his glory by appointing us to his service. Instruments for his glory appointing us to his service doing what? Well, making disciples. Let's continue with verse 13. The first part of this verse says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Here Paul is saying, despite being a blasphemer in the past, despite being a persecutor in the past, despite being an insolent opponent or an aggressor in the past, but why does Paul say that he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent? Actually, why is Paul so hard on himself? Now, before we answer these questions, I, I like to put in context who Paul really was. Let's rewind about 27 years back to the book of Acts. Specifically, chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9. Specifically now in chapter 7, verse 54 and 58 says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. What is happening here is that a godly man, a leader of the church named Stephen, has been arrested and ended up, in front of the religious council in Jerusalem where he began to preach. 
and proclaimed Christ as Savior and Lord before them. And the religious leaders were not happy about it. So, like I just read, they were enraged and they, they ground their teeth at him. Verse 55. But he, he's talking about Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. This is beautiful. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed to, uh, together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stole him, stoned him. And the witness laid down their garments at the feet of a young man or mystery man named Saul. Do you know who this mystery man named Saul at the end of verse 58 is? It's Paul. So Paul was part of a crew that approved the stoning of Stephen. A couple of verses after that in Acts 8, 1, 3. And there arose on that day, the day of Stephen's death, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered through all out throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and make great lamentation over him. Verse 3 says, but Paul, but sorry, but Saul, and this is our Paul, was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women. And these were Christ's disciples and committed them to prison. Let's move a little bit to chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. But Saul, here we have Paul the bully again, still breeding threats and murder against the disciple of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging, belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them down to Jerusalem. Do I need to explain beyond this point why Paul considered himself a blasphemer, a, per, a persecutor, and insolent opponent? No. It's self-explanatory. But yes, I will explain it. <laughs> Paul was a blasphemer because he was reproaching God's name. He was reproaching God's character, work, and attributes by rejecting the work of Christ and his gospel. He was a blasphemer. Paul was a uh, persecutor, prosecutor, persecutor, because he was behind the arrest, the persecution, and the death of the people of the way. Christ's people, people that believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And Paul was an insolent opponent and a bully because he thought he was right. He believed his religion was right. And he believed his perception of God was right. But you know something? He was wrong. And look how things suddenly changed for Saul, the bully, in verse 3 and 6 in Acts number 9. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And here's the twist. And suddenly a light from heaven 
shone around, around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. After this encounter with Jesus, in verse 17 of this passage, in, uh, in, uh, in Acts number 9, says that one disciple lay hands on him. And Paul, number one, received the Holy Spirit. Paul was healed from his blindness. Paul was baptized. And he immediately proclaimed Jesus in synagogue, saying, He, and he's talking about Jesus, is the Son of God. Whoop. Now, fast forward 27 years back to Paul's present when he was writing this letter of Timothy. Paul knew the consequences he will face because of his rebellion against the true living God. And that the punishment will have been the eternal condemnation of his life. However, that was not what he received. He didn't get what he deserved. I love this uh, movie called The Count of Monte Cristo. If you haven't seen it, uh, it's a very cool movie. But really, what I like is vengeance, revenge. That's what I like. But here Paul didn't receive that. For that reason, in the second part of verse 13... Paul declared this, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Once again, Paul knew what his face must be because of his rebellion against God. However, he acknowledged that God has shown him the opposite of what he deserved. He received mercy. Mercy is when our actions deserve a punishment. However, we do not receive that punishment. And that mercy has been given to him since Paul's action in the past were the result of being an unbeliever. In fact, the apostle says that he did all this because he was ignorant. After hearing the accounts of how Paul saw act in the book of Acts, chapter 7, 8, and the beginning of chapter 9. There's no doubt that Paul did not know who he was messing with. He had embraced his religion and his customs so firmly that his eyes were completely blindfolded from the truth. Paul's statement of ignorance was not an excuse for his actions. His ignorance did not come from his lack of knowledge. It came from the fact that Paul was a sinner. So what did Paul actually ignore? He ignored, number one, the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. Number two, he ignored the truth that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He ignored the truth that Jesus has transformed the life of all that believers, those believers he was persecuting. However, despite being persecuted and dispersed, the gospel message continuing to be proclaimed. He ignored the truth that Jesus is the Lord of those who he was persecuting. 
Christ's encounter with Paul really transformed his unbelief. I love the expression used by this commentator. He says, Paul knew his heart prior to conversion was sincere, but sincerely wrong. <laughs> Paul saw himself as one who sinned in ignorantly until God poured out his mercy upon him. Something very important here in verse 13 about the word mercy is, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. The Greek word mercy used in this verse is translated as received mercy. Note that the term is a passive term. That means that Paul did not go out and acquire mercy. God provided it with no contributions on Paul's part. So let's move to verse 14. Paul introduced another word to his testimony. And the new word now is grace. Verse 14 says, And the, gra the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. It is a little bit easy to be confused about these two words, mercy and grace. And believe that both have the same meaning, but they don't. They don't really mean the same thing. While mercy is compassion when you deserve punishment, grace is a gift received without any merit on the part of the recipient. Verse 14 states that Jesus not only showed his grace, but he showed it abundantly. It's a grace that emanates only from the character and the heart of God. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a, res not a result of works so that no one may boast. Brothers and sisters, we have received both gifts from our Lord Jesus. On one hand, we receive mercy through Jesus when we do not receive the rewards of our sins and our trespasses. Instead, we receive compassion and forgiveness through the work of Christ. Despite ignoring our own sin, despite ignoring the true God and our need of Him, He did not pay us back with condemnation. God reward us with forgiveness. We have received that kind of reward. Not because of us, because of the justice through the sacrifice of God's Son, Jesus. Amen. On the other hand, we also have received His grace. A grace like no other. A grace like cannot be understood. A grace that is abundant, overflowing. A grace that caused God to give His only begotten Son so that everyone who believes in Him does not perish, but has eternal life. John 3, 16. Let's go to verse 15. The text begins with an expression from Paul, never used in one of his letters. But Paul used this expression here for the first time, but it's not the last time he will use it in his pastoral, pastoral letters. 
Verse 15 says, the saying, that saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul says, and I paraphrase, paraphrase sorry, the next thing I'm going to say is worthy, is worth believing. What I'm going to say next is so true and correct that it must be accepted by all who are going to listen to. What Paul tries to tell Timothy next is crucially important and true. Not only because the apostle says it's important, but because it's true and the apostle lived it and experienced it with his own life. That Christ, and this is what Paul wants to say, is that Christ... Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This, this is not the gospel. This is the gospel. Here I would like to point out two important things. Number one, the first important thing is that reason why Christ came into the world. Why did Christ came into the world? Number one, he came into the world to save sinners. He came to save what was lost. He came to redeem human beings who were destined for death and condemnation and thus be saved by him. That's John 3, 17. My second point is that Paul positioned himself in the place where he should be. And this is important. Being the apostle called by God to the Gentiles as he was. Being the apostle who planted multiple churches and evangelized throughout the Roman Empire and beyond as he was, he did not place himself as his own savior. He placed, placed himself as a sinner. And he goes even further when he says, and the foremost of sinners. Actually, the worst. I am the greatest of all. I am the boss of all sinners. I am the goat of sinners. A commentator says, whether to be taken literally or not literally, hyperbolically, wow, Paul's statement indicates his keen sense of sinfulness and his need for God's mercy and grace. Although Paul's expression that he is great, the greatest of sinners might sound like a mic drop statement, that is not the most impacting expression in this verse. No. The most impacting expression in this verse is that Christ came to save sinners. Amen. And that's the gospel. He came to save all of those who are false teachers, like the ones that we mentioned weeks ago in Timothy 1, verse 3, 4, 5, and 6. He came to save all those who failed to fulfill the law, like the ones we mentioned in verse 9 and 10 last Sunday. He came to save all those who were blasphemers, persecutors, and aggressors, like Paul himself. He came to save all those like you and like me that have fallen short of the glory of God. I would like to divide my conclusion, the conclusion of this message in three parts. 
Part one, I want to proclaim the gospel. Second, I wanted to make a plea to all believers that are listening to me today. And number three, I want, to, I want us to respond. Number one, I want to proclaim the gospel. I want you to know that transformation is possible. I want to share some words told by Jesus. Jesus walks by and sees a man sitting at the tax table. He looks at this man and asks him to follow him. This man is called Levi, or we know him as Matthew. Matthew is a tax collector. And the way he responds to Jesus' calling was simple. He just followed him. In Jesus' times, tax, collector, tax collectors were one of the most hated people in society. They were traitors because they collected taxes for the Roman Empire. They were thieves because they charged more than taxpayers owed to the already subjugated nation and keep, kept the extra money for themselves. As a result of Jesus calling Matthew, a group of other tax collectors sat down and ate with Jesus and his disciples. So they were criticized by the religious leaders of the time. They questioned why Jesus ate with sinners and tax, tax collectors. What Jesus answered to them is recorded in verse 17 of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, where he says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The saddest human condition is believing that we are sufficient. It's believing that we do not need God. That it's possible to live apart from God. It's having a false confidence that you have it all. And it's really sad because these individuals live thinking that spiritually they are whole and wealthy, uh, uh, sorry, and healthy and have no need to be healed. People who... Like Paul, they have their eyes blindfolded in front of the truth because of their religion or because their false righteousness. They do not need a doctor because they're not sick. They don't, they don't need a doctor because they don't feel sick. They don't, they, don't do, they don't need a doctor because they don't have any disease. But they do not know that on the inside, in the inside they are dying. But it is beautiful when people understand and recognize that they have a need and go to the right place to be healed. It was, from that, it was for them that Jesus came. Not for those who believe that they're healthy, but for those who need a doctor. Jesus came to save sinners, those who need to be healed of their sin. In fact, Jesus says for such people that the kingdom of God is at hand and that they are blessed. Matthew 5 verse 6 says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. That's the gospel. Second, I want to make, make a plea to believers. The first plea is remember 
Believers, remember who you were, not to go back, but to see how God, through his son Jesus, has changed the destiny of your life. Remember who you were before Christ and worship him for who you are now. Message two, or plea number two. Brothers and sisters, disciples of Christ, your story of grace is worth telling others. Try to tell it in a way that elevates Christ and his work on you. You can imagine how many people need to hear a story of transformation. When you do, don't elevate your story or your sins. Put yourself in the right place of the story and place Jesus as the author of that story. Plea number three. Actually, before I go to plea number three, sometimes we are so proud of our sin. We're like, oh, if you know. And sometimes we are in the wrong place of the story. I need to say that. Plea number three, don't be discouraged. If your story is not impacting and what I'm saying here is, there's our people who have very impressive stories of grace, right? People who came out from addictions, people that extremely, they were extremely wicked. People that were, you know, living crazy lives. They come from jail or abuse. Don't be discouraged that your story is not like that. We have, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Our story of grace did not glorify who we were or who we are. It glorifies who has transformed us, that is Christ Jesus. And at the end, all of us, the one that has the impacting story and then don't, doesn't have it, we will all give glory to his name. The last thing that I want to do is to respond. And we want to, to respond to the gospel in a very usual way. We're going to, the band is going to sing. And I want you to sing with them. But I want to share with you an epitaph. A beautiful epitaph. <laughs> Actually, this man wrote his own epitaph before he died, obviously. <laughs> he died in 1807 at the age of 82. And that epitaph says this. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And look this. Preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed, appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Near 16 years at the only inbox and 20 years in this church. This man also wrote 
these verses. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. 